We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donghai University Associate Professor of Political Science, Albert Cho. Hi, everyone. Tonight we'll be discussing the appointment of a new DPP chairman, Guangzhou Min, finally taking office at the National Taiwan University as the president there. Government plans to distribute surplus tax revenues, calls for an end to candidates' election deposits, and an Antarctic odyssey. But we'll begin with Premier William Lai, who is stepping down ahead of an expected major cabinet reshuffle. Lai offered, of course, to resign immediately after the November local government elections, as he sought to take responsibility for the DPP's poor performance. There, however, President Tsai Ing-wen refused to accept his resignation at the time, and he agreed to stay on in the interest of political stability and continuity until mid-January. And speaking Thursday of this week, Tsai commended Lai for fulfilling his goals and said, although she was reluctant to let him go, she respects his decision to resign from office. Tsai is now expected to appoint a new cabinet next Monday, and former Premier Su Jing Chung is expected to be appointed to replace Lai, while the DPP's Gaoshung mayoral candidate Chen Chi Mai is tipped to take over as Deputy Premier. However, the presidential office is being a bit tight-lipped about this and has yet to confirm it as we record the show. So, Albert, Premier William Lai stepping down. If you had to give him marks out of 10 for his premiership, what would you give him? Um, I think uh, Premier Lai uh, was going to step down in the aftermath of the uh, November election, and then he was about to do so. But uh, because of the uh, momentum at that time uh, that uh, can be get. Uh, so DPP, as well as the President Tsai, they uh, wanted to, you know, kind of wait for a second and to see what will going on uh, for a while. So at that time, uh, President Tsai asked or requested a Premier uh, Lai to, to, to hold on for, for a while. But um, after the budget, the government budget was passed, uh, as a whole, so now it's about time for him to go. So I, I think both of them had a consensus over this. Um, yeah, that's right. Cho Zhongtai was another person that urged him to stay on in the interest of continuity and saying that he had done a good job. But I think the real open question now is what is next for William Lai? There are questions after the defeat of the DPP in 9 elections whether Lai would actually challenge Tsai to be presidential candidate of the DPP in 2020. And it was speculated when Lai was named premier to begin with that this was Tsai's way of removing Lai as a potential um, as a potential competition, that, that as premier she could sort of co-opt him. However, now Lai has uh, separated himself from the Tsai administration, and some, although he did resign to take responsibility for the defeats of the DPP, some took this as a signaling that he was willing to break with the Tsai administration. And so it's a question for me what, what Lai's next steps are. Right, what about Su Jing Chang, Brian, to replace him? Um, I find that a bit of a puzzling choice because Sue lost, and he is cited as one of the people who is uh, seen as just running too many times, that the DPP has always been putting forth these old faces. He's been around for so long that, for example, for my entire lifetime, he's always been there as a political figure. Uh, it would actually make more sense to me to go with a new figure. At the same time, the role of premier is often called on to take the blows to the president in terms of credibility, in terms of pushing for unpopular popular, uh, policies. And so Su, as an old face, could also be suited to that. Now, Albert, what do you think of Su Jing Chang's return? 
Yeah, there are two observations about this. First of all, uh, Su Zhenzhang, as many observers said, uh, does not really get along with President Tsai in the past. And for the first, I think they belong to different factions, and Su Zhenzhang is sort of like, uh, you know, uh, close to Xin Cao Liu, whereas uh, President Tsai, you know, has her own uh, faction. And the second, but because of the uh, electoral failure, I think both of them need to step on the same boat, so so to speak. So, you know, they have to deal with it, and that's the that's not the best scenario, but that's not the worst scenario either. So I think uh, in, in, a, in the future, it will be very interesting for us to see whether they can smoothly kind of cooperate with each other. Because on the one hand, Su Zhenzhang is very, I mean, he's a strong leader, I mean, as a premier. But also on the other hand, Tsai Ing-wen uh, herself is also very robust, very strong as well. So I'm not sure how much, you know, you know that can work uh, between the, the two. But uh, definitely, uh, you know, from the perspective of, 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 of uh, ordinary Chinese people, uh, we, we definitely see the country continue to go on, especially under the pressure of China. Yeah. Right. I mean, Albert, what, who else do you expect to enter the cabinet? I mean, there's talk of Lin Jialong becoming transport minister. Right. Lin Jialong and also uh, uh, now Su Zhenzhang uh, became as a premier and Lin Jialong as well. And uh, I'm not sure about others, but, um, you know, there are some comments from my KMT friends. They say that it's kind of strange that uh, for President Tsai Ing-wen to appoint those who fails or who lost in the election, but ends up being uh, in a higher position. So that's kind of different, weird logic in, in, in our democracy, especially uh, according to the experience uh, of Taiwan in the past. But, um, you know, like, like, uh, like what the host, I mean, Galvin just mentioned, that uh, this is a very new situation for Taiwan, especially for TPP, because they, lo- they, had, they had a landslide uh, lost. Uh, in in the election in November, uh, but for KMT, I think the situation sort of like changed in recent times because the the President Xi Jinping, uh, the way he talked and also the content he had, uh, the speech he had toward Taiwan was was trying to push us in a direction of one country two system, and that kind of reversed the uh, re- reversed the weakness of, of President Tsai Ing-wen. Now she seems to uh, gain more. Supports from from people, especially from the internet. So I think DPP see this as a as a chance to go back. So I, I think they will they will start out uh, from there. Well, of course, Brian, there's talk of Joseph Wu being replaced at the foreign ministry as well. Um, that's right. So it looks like a reshuffling across the board. Um, Joseph Wu did get positive press for his statements against China after Xi Jinping's uh, his, his speech that was on January 2nd. And he had these responses on Twitter, which were quite popularly received online, particularly among young people. But it does seem like the time administration wants to turn over a new leaf in this regard. And perhaps the way to do so is to advance these middle generation, quote unquote, DPP politicians, even if they lost, such as Ning Jialong or um, Chen Mai. So that that is a question. Will that work out as a strategy, or will, will they be seen as appointing losers as uh, the new face of uh, or turning in in terms of turning over a new leaf that they're actually just still reliant on these people who could not actually win? Right. I mean, what what's next for William Lai then, Albert? Where do you see him going? I think William Lai. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, I think he will think about uh, if there's any possibility for him to uh, force Tsai Ing-wen out of the 
re-election position because that's kind of big thing for TPP, not only for Tsai Ing-wen herself. Uh, if he does so, that means that there is a very apparent conflict within the party of DPP. Okay, so I, I think he has to think about that. And uh, secondly, um, the factor of uh, Ke Wenze, the mayor Ke, I think he definitely, according to, uh, you know, I, I believe that he will run for the 2020. It's just, it's just about, you know, later or sooner. And uh, if this is a situation that makes it even more complex for William Lai to jump into the, 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 the big, bigger game. So if that happens, I, I think that he will, he will wait until uh, 2022 for President Tsai Ing-wen to step down, and he will just kind of uh, step on, on that, that position to, to run for the presidency. And the second, uh, there's a, a kind of wild card from China. I think China... Uh, in recent years, and uh, on the one hand, they don't, they do not really understand the democratic dynamic in Taiwan in the sense that they also speak uh, something foolish and to uh, push away even further. I mean, the the, the Taiwanese people's uh, mood or, or thinking. On the other hand, I think China's China's any action or words will influence the DPP in a way that. Uh, they will support the DPP, which is very weird because they are against the DPP. But when, whenever they say something, uh, you always see a lot of voters uh, uh, register their support for, for, for DPP. So that's really a challenge to KMT. So I think William Lai will take on this position to say something because, after all, he's not going to be premier anymore. So maybe he will make some move in this uh, in terms of uh, giving out some statements against China. Um, that's my speculation. Yeah. yeah, if that's true, I think it really does depend on timing. For example, some of the attempts to challenge Tsai Ing-wen were, within the DPP were badly timed, such as the attempt by Peng Mingming and members of the Formosa Alliance and, and groups like that, these elders of the DPP, to call on Tsai to not run as the DPP's candidate in 2020. That happened around the same time as Xi Jinping's speech, which led to this uh, outbreak of support for Thai. And so that seems to have really reflected badly on them. And that really defanged what could have been a much more successful attempt to really challenge Thai. So Lai would have to find the right timing to challenge Thai. And what kind of discourse he would use is also a question. For example, he could return to uh, very strong Taiwanese independence advocacy as a way to challenge Tsai um, with a claim that she's not aggressive enough on this, um, particularly in this, in this mood in which Taiwanese are outraged against Xi Jinping. Um, or he could just try to find a moderate path in regards to some of his comments going back on the comments he made when he was the mayor of Tainan that seemed more supportive of Taiwanese independence. Right, moving on, and former Cabinet Secretary-General Zhuo Rongtai has been elected chairman of the DPP. Zhuo garnered 24,699 votes, or 72.6% of the ballots cast by DPP members in the election. And he beat out his only rival, Michael Yeo, who's the chairman of the Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation, who won 9,323 votes. Now, a total of 200,000 party members were eligible to vote. And Zhuo was confirmed party chairman at a central advisory meeting 
Ruling Meeting, or Committee Meeting rather, on Wednesday. And he replaced Acting Party Chair Lin Yo Jung. Lin, of course, was appointed after President Tsai Ing-wen resigned as DPP Chairwoman on the evening of November the 24th, following the party's defeats in that day's local elections. Now, Zhuo is considered to be a bit of a protege of Tsai and is expected to be supportive of the President, who is now, as Brian said earlier, facing calls not to run for re-election in 2020 by some factions within the party. Now, according to Zhuo, he plans to establish what he called a party government platform made up of the President, the Premier, the DPP Legislative Caucus Whip and party chairperson to undertake what he said, brainstorming and reviews about how the party can move forward. So, Albert, draw wrong tie yep. as DPP chair. Um, there are a couple of uh, comments I, I would like to have on this one. Uh, first of all, I think uh, DPP is always good at uh, generational change, uh, especially after their electoral defeats. And this time, we, we, we didn't, did not see any exception. And that is good because um, we always need new blood to come to kick into the party system and to make the party continue to run. And Zorong Tai, uh, he took over. I mean, he first of all, he jumped in the election and uh, competed with uh, Yo In Long and finally won the election. I think that was a, you know, you know, for, as, a, as an outsider, we have nothing to, to criticize about it. Uh, so that's the, my first comment. And the second comment is that... Um, you know, what's ironical about the whole situation is that uh, because uh, one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons uh, Zorong Tai jumped in is because of President Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, because of her failure in performing, uh, you know, the, the philosophy or principle of DPP. So, so that is why DPP lost the election. But also, on the other hand, um, Zorong Tai had a good relationship with Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, even many people think that... You know, uh, he comes out of the control of Tsai Ing-wen and wanted to continue the Tsai, Ing-wen, Tsai Ing-wen's rule in DPP. So it will be interesting to see whether the reform Zorong Tai talked about is a real, authentic reform or just kind of a fake reform that's still in, under the leadership of Tsai Ing-wen. So if that's the case, then what we say the reform is a fake. Okay, so that's the two observations so far I have. That's right. Uh, Cho was advanced by the quote-unquote middle generation politicians of the DPP as uh, the claim was advanced that he represented them in some way. Um, it's not surprising to me that he won against Michael Yeo, who seemed to me to have a fairly inept campaign. Um, he was accused of releasing fake statistics. Uh, he was criticized for the fact that he ran in Hualien four times for uh, county commissioner and legislature and did not win, yet he criticized Tsai for her own, her own electoral record. And his, his campaign was uh, mostly based on just criticizing Tsai. And so Cho is seeing as maintaining stability. But what's also a question to me is uh, what will happen if there is a leadership challenge against Tsai as president in 2020? Um, he is notably close to William Lai, for example. He called on William Lai to not step down as premier numerous times. And he does seem to have the support of, of new Tide members. And the new Tide is still dominant within DPP, as you see with the turnover, um, with Su Jin Hong named premier, perhaps. Um, but then what happens if the new tide turns against Tsai, for example, if, if Lies, Lies, William Lai is also affiliated with the new tide after all? Right, of course, Albert, there was 200,000 party members could vote in this election, and, well, basically 35,000 voted. So do you think DPP members weren't concerned about who the party chair is? Um, well, of course, um, this is, has to do with, you know, like, because the... Party voting is not a high-profile uh, thing. 
either in KMT or in DPP. So, of, of course, we can interpret this as a phenomenon uh, that um, uh, because of the, of the electoral defeat of DPP, so a lot of DPP supporters were disappointed and, you know, lack the motivations to go out to vote. But I think it will come back. I think it will come back. And uh, especially when China car, the wild car plays out, I think a lot of more people, not only the people, you know, not only the DPP uh, party supporters, but also KMT supporters, they will come out to vote. So I, I don't see this as a big problem. What about you, Brian? I mean, do you think the DPP could have done more to rally the 200,000 eligible voters to actually go and vote? If there had been a kind of rallying behind a certain candidate, that would actually have been quite powerful. It would represent that DPP is really taking its losses seriously and in, in trying to come up with something new. Um, at the same time, yes, I think that's right, that uh, you don't often see all that many people voting. I believe the last time there was uh, chair voting, it was 90% of the, the party members voted, and this time was a 16.9%, so down by 2%. Um, and at the same time, I think that just there was only two candidates, and Michael Yeo seemed quite weak as a candidate. I think it doesn't surprise me that Cho won as the uh, as DPP chair, and so I think because the race wasn't that heated, there was not this kind of panic or sense of crisis which mobilized DPP members out to vote. Um, at the same time, also, you didn't have the phenomenon that you see with the KMT in which a previously obscure candidate appears out of nowhere and suddenly dominates the discourse and, and seems like they will radically change the direction. And that has its positives and negatives. It means a, maintain, a maintenance of a kind of status quo for now, and we'll have to see if the party is actually able to make further changes down the line. Guan Zhongmin officially took over as president of the National Taiwan University this week and is vowing to lead the school into a brighter future. Now, of course, Guan's finally setting foot in his office comes over a year since he was elected to replace the former university president by the University Selection Committee. And speaking of the handover ceremony, Guan said that he will follow in the footsteps of his predecessors, working with all the teachers and the students at the university to ensure it keeps moving forward toward a more glorious future. Guan also touted two visions for the development of the university saying that the school must adopt globalization and transformation as it works to reinforce its position in Asia's higher education sector by developing deeper international ties. So Albert, Guan Zhongmin finally gets his office. Well, this is a long, long story and finally we all got to see there's an end to it. Um, obviously, Taiwan, President Taiwan and also the other uh, DPP compatriots, they saw the results of the uh, obstruction to Guan's opponent, and that was a electoral defeat, and that was a big time, right? So, um, so uh, given that, um, the strategy for President Taiwan to use is to appoint uh, uh, a interim uh, educational affairs uh, uh, minister, so to speak, and to, in a, in a strategic kind of path, you know, let the whole process move on and to let the Guangzhou mean uh, to take the position. Even though still, uh, you know, within the DPP party, there are a lot of uh, uh, fight back and a lot of complaints still around. But still, they, they decided to let the whole story move on. And, and, and that was a kind of a, a smart or wise decision for DPP. Or maybe that's, you know, the only decision they, they, they could make. And so they have to do that. On the other hand, uh, Guan Zhongmin was, was wise, too. You know, on the one hand, Guan Zhongmin himself is very tough. He's a tough guy. And if you read the story of his life, um, he was not always a winner in, in the process of his school. 
But finally, he got to uh, the academic Seneca and, you know, became a very influential scholar who even created a, a gigantic, gigantic system for uh, social science researchers for us to, to, to rely on. So, I mean, I mean, somebody. So he knows how to do this, and uh, he waited until to see if the election re- results uh, were good enough to him. And finally, that was a good result to him. So he... He insisted on this position, but if there's another scenario, if, if the election result was was that the DPP won, then probably he would he, he he will withdraw. So that that was kind of my my observation about him. But anyway, finally, I think NTU is the best university in Taiwan. I think they need to move on, especially regarding internet internationalization, and also they need to uh, talk to the world, uh, given the fact that. There are a lot of universities from Tokyo, from uh, Seoul, from Beijing. I think they're really competing with us. I think we are, you know, we, 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 we need to work on this more. Uh, it doesn't, the scandal is not reflected well on National Taiwan University, uh, particularly the last president, Yang, uh, resigned for the similar scandal that there was accusations of plagiarism against him. And uh, this time with Quan, he faced a number of scandals, and there are even more scandals that have emerged after his, he was announced as appointed. For example, that he might have been working part-time at a magazine um, while he was minister under the Ma administration. And so I think it is a defeat of the Tsai administration. They flip-flopped many times throughout this past year. It cost the careers of a number of ministers of education. Uh, Ye Jingrong, the, the Minister of Interior, resigned his position to take up the position as ministry, uh, Minister of Education. And then he had to kind of sort of fall on his sword to uh, carry this out, to finally, to finally name Kwan as, as the president. Um, this reverses just a previous decision to, to block him uh, from the Tsai administration. And so the Tsai administration has just finally relented. But I think that there were enough scandals uh, that Kwan faced that if it had taken a firm Stance, it would have kind of avoided all of this trouble um, way before elections, uh, way before all this became as big as it did. Um, and it's very interesting to me the choice of scandals that they went after him on. It wasn't about teaching in China, it wasn't about plagiarism, it's about uh, questions of process with regards to how the election was held, that there may have been a conflict of interest because he served on the board of Taiwan Mobile at the same time as a member of the selection committee for the NTU University president. Well, I mean, Albert, do you, do you think the students at the university could, be, could oppose Guan? Well, you know, like NTU students, they're uh, historically very liberal and very op- open to many different challenges. And also, even even within uh, NTU National Town University itself, there are different party supporters. And uh, in the past, according to many people's experience, more green supporters than the KMT supporters. But, you know, we will never forget that uh, this Description is is based on the 90s or even 80s or even 2000s uh, experience. Now it's 2018, so it could, could have been a different situation, maybe. So uh, I would say when you mention the opposition force within NTU, we really have to specify only part of them really opposed against Guangdongming. If you look at the merit, I mean, if, if we uh, talk about Guangdongming on merit uh, basis, you know, it, it's really hard to complain about it. So, you know, let, let us to, to think about the uh, chancellor of NTU based on his ability rather than based on his party tendency. That's the way to go. Otherwise, I think the whole situation would continue to be stuck. And that's the last thing we, want, we would like to see. I mean, Brian, do you, if, do you think if Guan tries to push the university towards, let's say, China-centric study, do you think there could be problems for him? 
I think there could be. Uh, NTU was quite active during, for example, the Sunfire Movement in 2014. And at the same time, it is true, though, that NTU is split on terms of identity or politics and so forth. Um, for example, with regards to the movement that supported Guan being named president, they called themselves the New May Fourth Movement, the May Fourth Movement having taken place in China in the early 20th century. And some of the departments that were supportive of Guan did, were, are generally perceived as being more politically blue. Um, for example, the Chinese literature department, that is Chinese, not Taiwanese literature, mainland Chinese literature. Um, so these, these splits will continue. I think that the people that will resist Guan or continue to criticize him, unsurprisingly, will be more pan-green, and there are quite a lot of students like that. Um, at the same time, in regards to the supporters of Guan, there, is, uh, uh, there are people who think that the time institution overstepped its bounds this time, that it interfered in university autonomy. And so it's not all students support that support Guan are simply pan-blue. Um, it's not surprising, too, though, at the same time, the KMT has really tried to leverage on this uh, to make it appear that the Thai administration is politically persecuting former members of the Mon administration, uh, people that were advancing the CSSTA uh, back during the Mon administration. And uh, so you have Ma Ying-jil come out, again, to support Quan, who is part of his administration. You have Apollo Chen and other KMT legislators and so forth. We have to take a short break now, but we will right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and I'm joined in the second half of the show by regular commentator Ross Feingold, because Albert Cho, well, he had to hit some student problems. He had to go and mark his students' examinations. So, good evening, Ross. Good evening. And we'll move straight into the second half of the show with the government announcing a series of measures aimed at increasing domestic demand with the aim of boosting the island's economic growth this year and of using fiscal surpluses from the past two years to help the needy. Now, Vice Premier Xu Junji says by using the so-called economic dividend, the government will give subsidies to the needy, young children, the elderly and low-income households. And he also says that funds could be used to help tackle the African swine fever scare. Now, the statement, of course, comes after President Tsai Ing-wen outlined plans to use higher-than-expected tax revenues in the past two years to help more people benefit from what she said was the country's economic growth. Now, the Cabinet spokeswoman, Colasia Tucker, says that domestic demand is seen as key to ensuring stable economic growth in 2019, and the government plans to increase people's disposable income by optimising the taxation systems. Now, your Tucker says the government hopes to achieve economic growth of 24 to 2.6% through efforts to spur higher public consumption. Now, these spending programs include promoting domestic travel and tourism, hosting large-scale activities, conferences and exhibitions, and also providing subsidies for the purchase of energy-efficient equipment and electronic vehicles. So, Ross, more ways to have people spending money and more money from the tax system to the needy. Good idea or not? It's a great idea if you're trying to get reelected a year from now. So obviously the DPP wants to pave the way for its reelection, both uh, the president as well as its majority in the legislative unit. And this is what any democratically elected government will do before an election or they're seeking a second term. They, they will start handing out the goodies, uh, as they call them in some countries, uh, to the voters and hope that it creates a, a good feeling. And uh, there, there's some good things to that, but there's also some very bad things about that. 
One is a way to spur spending or economic growth. It's really not a long-term solution. It's a one-shot. It's like adding extra caffeine to your coffee or an extra espresso shot uh, in the morning. It's not a sustainable way to grow the economy or a sustainable way to create jobs. It's not a sustainable way to upgrade the economy. So it actually works at cross-purposes to the Thai government's policies, which is to invest in various types of industrial upgrading. So, so conceptually, it's not really a great idea. And no surprise, not only did the Guomindang Legislative Caucus in the LY criticize this, but many commentators have criticized this. There's a, a well-known commentator named, named Jai Shun, uh, it's kind of like the, the god of, of uh, uh, nerdy guys who stay at home. And, and he's been all over this on his Facebook page. And then he got into a war of words with the Ministry of Finance. Uh, and the Ministry of Finance has taken to Facebook uh, in a, using a fairly unusual tone of speaking to try to refute the uh, accusations by, by the Jaishan, which was basically, this is taking the taxpayer money from one pocket to the other. And it's not like this money grows on trees, it really is ultimately taxpayer money, and the government's been trying to say it's not taxpayer money, it's tax revenue. But ultimately, of course, it's taxpayer money that's being used in this way. Uh, so the, it, it wasn't really rolled out very well. The government has, uh, no surprise, changed course multiple times about how it's going to be passing this money to the, the less, less well-off. Uh, and it's just come under a, a extraordinary torrent of criticism uh, for for the the above reasons. So we'll probably ultimately see some changes, but they will ultimately do something. And, and why do we know this? Because in recent years, uh, all the previous presidents have done very similar programs with, with giveaways, with tax breaks, with subsidies, subsidies for childcare, subsidies for domestic travel has been a popular one. It's also in the news again this week. So they will do something, uh, but it will be taking the taxpayer money from, from one pocket uh, and putting it in another. Of course, Brian Ross made a point there because local newspapers called it the red envelopes for votes. Yeah, and the DPP has made that accusation against, for example, Taipei Mayor Kobanjo. Um, Pastor Yao made that accusation during mayoral elections, which is not at all surprising. And now we have Tai doing this. But it's just uh, this time around, it was very badly communicated. Uh, the Thai administration is now phrasing it as this is not money from the regular taxpayers, but it's from corporations and, and things like that. On the other hand, the KMT accuses the Thai administration of uh, touching funds that had been untouched in 19, since 1950 to draw on this, raising questions as to why the KMT didn't use this money for uh, taxpayers in the past, in the past 70 years. Um, but just flip-flopping on this uh, was, was really the downfall of the Thai administration, that after reports leaked on this, uh, the Thai administration was first confused and expressed openly that it was undecided on what to do with this money. And then it, it did not communicate uh, very well where this money was coming from and, and have a, a good justification apart from just saying that, oh, yeah, we are trying to help those that are poor and uh, make under 30000 and young people and things like that. Um, and it's, it's in itself, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad idea, even if it's not a long-term solution. But again, it just it just comes off of desperation um, when you do actually communicate the policy in such a convoluted way. And of course, Ross, there's also been allegations that maybe the government could use the tax surplus revenue to pay off the national debt. Well, that, that's the whole danger with this situation or, or where the government started from in, in, in trying to figure out what to do with uh, the tax surplus. And keep in mind... This simply means that the tax revenues that were collected came in over budget or over the forecast. 
it, it doesn't necessarily mean the economy is doing extraordinarily well. Uh, but but uh, the government officials, they make a forecast every year of how much tax revenue they'll get from the different tax sources, the main sources being personal income tax that uh, all of us pay, corporate income tax, and then, and then there's also a tax on uh, business receipts, which is a big money maker for the government as well. Uh, but, but the danger here is you could say that about anything. Uh, you know, we often talk on your program, Gavin, about the need to invest more in national defense in Taiwan. You could easily say, great, and especially with, with all the discussion over recent days about China's threat to Taiwan. Wouldn't this have been a great time to say uh, we've increased the defense budget over the last few years, but we're going to increase it even more with, with this extra money that we found. Uh, you could use it for environmental protection. You could use it for additional infrastructure, keeping in mind the government has already spent a lot of money on infrastructure, plans to spend even more in the coming year. Uh, so so you, you could just spend it on just about anything that the government needs to spend money on. Uh, putting it into, into the pockets of uh, the less well off, it, it's one option. It, it doesn't. It's not necessarily the best option. And ultimately, you give you give individuals uh, a few thousand NT, thirty thousand NT, even fifty thousand NT. It, it only marginally improves their circumstances, and, and it is just one off. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And so, just how will the time institution really deal with those long-term issues regarding government spending, uh, regarding those salaries, and so forth? I think more systematic action needs to be changed rather than just throwing money at voters right before elections in in a way which, unfortunately, voters just uh, they were they uh, maybe it's a good thing that there is these criticism because of the fact that so many politicians do this, not just the time institution. Um, just long-term solutions are really what the time institution should campaign to voters on the basis of, and, and that's not what it's doing in this case. Right. Now, talking of calling for change, three of the island's smaller political parties are calling on the government to change regulations governing candidate registration fees for local and national elections. Now, the New Power Party, the Social Democratic Party and the Green Party say that the current regulation that requires candidates to pay a 2 million NT deposit in order to register stymies the participation of lesser political parties in the election process. Now, the New Power Party says it will seek to introduce a series of amendments to the island's election laws during the next legislative session, which are aimed at scrapping the need for individuals or parties to pay the deposit. Now, according to Social Democratic Party Governor Fan Yun, such a move will enable ordinary people who lack financial backing to participate in elections to make Taiwan's ballots more open. Now, of course, Fan Yun famously was going to run as the new Taipei mayor, but she refused to pay the 2 million NT deposit and the Central Election Commission, of course, refused to register her candidacy. So, Brian, do you think they should scrap the deposit is it good or bad i think that is a good thing because there is a to scrap the deposit i mean because there is an issue of candidates particularly local candidates such as city councillors running for office uh, not really having the money to have these election deposits and so even if they do when they have a lot of money that they owe and as a result then they turn towards illicit means of gaining money to repay all this money um, election ads in taiwan are extremely expensive in the tens of thousands just for a billboard um a third-party candidate, um, for example, one of the candidates of the Social Democratic Party I talked to said that his entire budget was $2 million just for the campaign. And so if there's an ex- a, a, a deposit which is that high, that this is enough money that he would spend in a campaign, then that just really does make it very prohibitive for people to run. Um, a woman in her 30s... This is what the the Obasang Alliance, which is another alliance of independent candidates, argues that a woman that's 30 would have to save for 50 months in order to have that amount of money in order to run. And so that is that does make it very difficult. It makes it very hard unless you're part of a, a political party that you've worked your way into a political party that has resources to be able to run for office.
I couldn't disagree more with Brian on this point because there's some logic to having minimum barriers to putting people on the ballot. For starters, the, the cost of operating elections is also very high. We know this from the, the mess that became of, of voting in November due to the uh, 10 referendums in addition to the local offices that were on the ballot for which uh, people lost their jobs and there's lawsuits ongoing. Uh, so you need to cover the cost of elections. But more importantly, is, is the, there's a concept here that to be on the ballot, you should have already passed through some minimum barriers, including having the ability to raise a little bit of money. Uh, otherwise, it's actually a drag on resources to have somebody on the ballot who hasn't even passed that minimum threshold of organizing. I'm not talking about signatures. You, you could always get some eager uh, people who support you to stand on the street and, and collect signatures uh, to meet signature thresholds. But, but fundraising is also an important threshold for political candidates uh, who, who have some minimum support in the community. And if you can't even get up to 2 million NT, then you, you really have no business running. Uh, that, that is, I don't even think that's harsh to say. Yes, it will knock out people for, who, who don't come from organizations that have that ability. But if you can't even raise 2 million NT, how could you possibly serve uh, in, in a, as a city councilor or a mayor? It, it almost uh, defies logic. And, and uh, there's an important, another important point here specific to Taiwan elections to keep in mind. In years ago, the legislative UN before reform was multi-member constituencies. The city councilor in, in election in many places in Taiwan is still multi-member constituency, where, where people get elected. Uh, you know, so if there are 20 candidates and there's 10 seats in that constituency, then the top 10 vote getters get it. So you, you get people getting elected who might only have four or five percent. Uh, of the vote, it's a very low threshold to, to get elected to some offices in Taiwan. Uh, how much further can we open this up? And let's not take the democracy pendulum and swing it uh, to, to, to a point where it's organizational nonsense. And, and by dropping what's a relatively low threshold or deposit amount, I should say, uh, to make it easy for just about anyone to get on a ballot, you're just asking for electoral chaos like we used to have when the legislative UN constituencies were multi-member. Um, I think that isn't prevented a number of fringe candidates from running if they have the money. The most famous example might be Mark Lin in Tainan, but you also have uh, Taishan, the, the quote-unquote god of wealth. Um, you also have Wu Yang of uh, the Honey Lemonade fame. Uh, at the same time, then, I think it really does prevent policy debates. For example, Han Guo, when he was debating uh, Chen Qimai, there was actually a few other candidates that were present, and one was actually a pan-blue candidate, a deep blue candidate, actually, and she was actually much more articulate than Han. But in, in, my, my, in my opinion. But she wouldn't get the votes because she doesn't have the resources. And so that, what happens then? What happens when this system does actually end up preventing very qualified candidates from having a chance so long as they are not part of a party mechanism? Um, it, does, it does shut out people. And uh, even with the referendums in, you just see that it is the people that have resources that are able to push for their political views. You see all this money going to the anti-gay referendum, for example, uh, because you do have money flowing in from the U.S. and a conservative group sometimes are quite wealthy, um, or church groups are quite wealthy. And that, that leads to a certain straitjacket on politics. 
Well, we get, they're both my guests there disagree wholly on that one, whether this is right and that's right, but anyway, we'll move on. Now, finally, members of the island's first Antarctic expedition returned to Taiwan this week, following a gruelling journey to reach the South Pole. Now, the five-member team was led by entrepreneur Albert Leo and included ultra-marathon runner Tommy Chen, actor Chris Wong and documentary maker Young Lee Zhou. Now, the team left Taiwan last November and arrived in Antarctica in early December. Now, they initially intended to reach the pole via a 660-kilometre trek from the coast. However, weather conditions made such a crossing impossible and the team opted instead to make a 350-kilometre trek across the continental plateau to the South Pole. The team braved temperatures of minus 30 degrees, whiteout conditions and its members suffered from hypothermia and frostbite during the journey. So, Brian, the first ever team from Taiwan to go to the South Pole... Um, wasn't what you call a sort of a research expedition. It was sort of an expedition put together in by an individual with lots of money to go there. I mean, that's right. You... It was uh, organized by a foundation, if I believe correctly, Gamania. Yeah, Gamania. Yeah. Yes, and the idea is to promote people getting out of their their comfort zones to do more exciting things. Um, that's not necessarily a bad idea either. Although this, uh, although there's a lot of resources put into this, of course, um, they did take some footage. Um, it's not scientific, but it is it is still an achievement for these people. Um, it's become an object of national pride as well. Um, surprisingly, though, I've actually seen Chinese media report on this as an object of Chinese national pride as well, which was kind of unusual. But <laughs> <laughs> well, every, everything you just described, uh, Gab, it just it, it sounds like a lot of fun. And if the, the sponsors wanted to spend their money on that instead of. Uh, you know, something here domestically in Taiwan for the public good, and that it's their money, it's up to them. But the interesting fear, thing here is what's more relevant to Taiwan is probably not the South, it's the North, where China has been very active, where due to changes in, in uh, brought on by, uh, some would say, climate change, some might deny it, but uh, due to changes in weather and, and melting of the ice, there's uh, some enormous changes to shipping patterns, for example, and, and the ease with which to tra- traverse uh, the, the, the northern part of the planet Earth rather than the southern part, which is extremely important to Taiwan as a trading nation and, and with large shipping fleets. Uh, I think Taiwan is long past the point where it should be spending resources focusing on the North Pole, not the South Pole. But isn't the North Pole further away? Uh, but, but the South Pole is not exactly in the neighbourhood of Taiwan either, Gavin. That's true, that's true. Anyway, we'll leave it there this week here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone in the second half of the show by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And I was, of course, joined on the telephone in the first part of the show by Albert Cho. Now, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.